Our reading this morning is from Deuteronomy chapter 7, and it's the first 26 verses of that chapter. Um, and I hope you'll bear with me as I read it to you. If you want to uh, take a moment or two to look it up in the Bibles, it's Deuteronomy chapter 7, and we're beginning the reading at verse 1 through to verse 26. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you're entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters to your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord, has, Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. But those who hate him he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees and laws I give you today. If you pay attention to these laws and are careful, careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will bless his covenant of love with you as he swore to your forefathers. He will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He will bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of your land, your grain, new wine and oil, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks in the land that he swore to your forefathers to give you. You will be blessed more than any other people. None of your men or women will be childless, nor any of your livestock without young. The Lord will keep you free from every disease. He will not inflict on you the horrible diseases you knew in Egypt but he will inflict them on all who hate you. You must destroy all the peoples your Lord, the Lord your God, gives over to you. Do not look on them with pity and do not serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. You may say to yourselves, these nations are stronger than we are, how can we drive them out? But do not be afraid of them. Remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. You saw with your own eyes the great trials, the miraculous signs and wonders, the mighty hand and outstretched arm with which the Lord your God brought you out. 
the Lord your God will do the same to all the peoples you now fear. Moreover, the Lord your God will send a hornet among them until even the survivors who hide from you have perished. Do not be terrified by them, for the Lord your God who is among you is a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little. You will not be allowed to eliminate them all at once, or the wild animals will not multiply around you. But the Lord your God will deliver them over to you, throwing them into great confusion until they are destroyed. He will give their kings into your hand, and you will wipe out their names from under heaven. No one will be able to stand up against you. You will destroy them. The images of their gods you are to burn in the fire. Do not covet the silver and gold on them, and do not take it for yourselves, or you will be ensnared by it, for it is detestable to the Lord your God. Do not bring a detestable thing into your house, or you, like it, will be set apart for destruction. Utterly abhor and detest it, for it is set apart for destruction. We've worshipped God in song and in prayer and in reading his word. And I wanted to allow us some time this morning to be quiet in his presence. To allow him to minister to us. And to enable us to bring the personal concerns of our hearts to him. And as we do that, the, uh, the music group are going to play for us. Uh, be still for the presence of the Lord. After we've listened to that, if there's anyone who would like to share anything that's on their heart this morning, a word of testimony, of comfort or challenge, if there's anything you feel God might be asking you to share with us as a fellowship this morning, I'll leave some time for you to come to the pulpit to do that. If you're uncomfortable coming up here, just raise your hand and I'll grab one of the microphones from here and bring it to where you're seated. If nothing, then that's absolutely fine. We'll just move on. But a time of quiet, a rest in the presence of God spend time in prayer with him.
thank you that we can rest here in your presence, that you, by your Spirit, are with us. We thank you that you are a great and awesome God. We thank you, Lord, that you are our shepherd and our guide, and that we can bring all the concerns of our hearts to you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Robin is going to come and bring our prayers of intercession for the wider world. What did you make of that reading from Deuteronomy 7? Did you find it disturbing? Yes, yeah, some of you did. I think without a doubt it's one of the toughest parts of the Old Testament to understand and accept. Because bottom line is, it is a prescription for genocide. It is the divinely sanctioned extermination of the inhabitants of Canaan at the hands of the Israelites and the complete obliteration of their culture. There is to be nothing left, neither of the inhabitants of the land nor of their religion. And having witnessed what ISIS, ISIL, Islamic State, call them what you will, having seen what they did in recent years the visual horrors of implementing this kind of programme will be fresh in our minds. The news reports that we've read, the images we've seen, leave us in no doubt as to what this kind of destruction entails if it is put into practice. And our problem as Christians is, it's in the Bible. It's part of God's revelation. This is the God whom we're called to worship and many people struggle with that. Can we? Should we take it at face value? Many people struggle to do so. It's on account of passages like this that many Christians prefer to give the Old Testament a wide berth. Finding that particular image of God difficult to accept, they simply close their eyes and ignore it. Far safer and easier to stick with the New Testament, uh, where God is so much nicer. For many of those who do delve into the Old Testament, passages like this can form a real barrier to faith. Here we find a God who seems to be barbaric and unworthy of trust and worship. And some people find ample evidence to confirm their suspicions that religion is to blame for so many of the conflicts, so much of the evil and suffering in the world. So we have an ironic situation where people who want to believe in God preserve their faith by ignoring the Old Testament, and people who look for God and read the Old Testament find it undermines their faith. All this raises the question as to what on earth this passage is doing in the Bible, and what do we make of it? There are those who say we need to bite the bullet, take it at face value and swallow it and say, actually, yes, this is what God is like. Bottom line is, he is a holy God, a righteous God and a God of judgment and we can't airbrush that facet of God out of our acknowledgement of who he is. If we try and do so, we are substituting for the real God an inferior model of our own making one who looks like a lot like the embodiment of British values. It's okay by him, whatever you believe, so long as you're nice to other people. Actually, we see from this passage that sin makes God angry. God is a God of judgment. And perhaps the Canaanite morals had reached such a deplorably low point that it was entirely appropriate for God to sweep them from the face of the earth and to use his chosen people, Israel, to be the instrument of his righteous judgment. And for Israel, there could be no compromise. It was a life or death scenario for them. It was us or them. Either we, we, we deal with the Canaanites or they will pull us down. 
And there are those who would say that if you query or challenge that question or that point of view, you better watch out. Because this kind of compromise is the first step down the line of a slippery slope away from the divinely inspired truth of the Bible and you could even be jeopardising your eternal salvation. That sounds like an extreme view. And I'm conscious I'm putting words into other people's mouths here. But it's not a million miles away from what a number of Christians sincerely believe. But it's not the only way of looking at this passage. Others shy away to some extent from focusing on a literal historical meaning and argue that the passage needs to be interpreted. The black and white portrait of reality is so hyperbolic it demands a degree of interpretation. According to Deuteronomy 7, those who are devoted to the Lord will be blessed with prosperity in every area of their life. Plenty of children, burgeoning crops, abundant livestock, and a life entirely free from all disease and infirmity. Really? Anyone who claims that all that is guaranteed here and now to those who honour God as they should is preaching a false gospel that wrongly condemns anyone who through no fault of their own undergoes hardship, illness or childlessness. The reality is that God does not shower limitless health and wealth on people who believe in him. That's not how it works. That's not what happens. So what do we make of promises like this? Well, perhaps they are a foretaste. Perhaps they are an earthly picture, a snapshot of the heavenly abundance of eternal life when we will be released from the limitations that hold us back and pull us down. You may not get all this stuff here and now, but it is reserved for you in the life to come. That freedom from illness, that abundance of blessing, that life in all its fullness, Canaan is a picture of what lies for us in glory. And correspondingly, all that stuff about slaughtering God's enemies, that's a picture of God's final judgment when he decisively and eternally rejects those who have rejected him and his laws. So this way, reading the passage, says the abundance of the promised land and the destruction of God's enemies are earthly pictures of heavenly blessings and the destruction of the last judgment. And we need to understand Deuteronomy that way. That way of reading the text says it's a picture of the future. Another way of reading it says it's a a reflection on Israel's past failures. The book of Deuteronomy replicates a lot of material found in Exodus and Numbers, and the title Deuteronomy actually means second law. The book portrays the law as being given a second time to the nation as they are poised to enter the promised land after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. But suppose the book as we have it now was written for the Israelite community much later. Suppose its primary audience was not the Israelites about to enter the promised land for the first time, but the Israelites hundreds of years later as they prepared to return to the promised land again after their exile in in Babylon. After they've won and lost the land again and they've been away and God is about to bring them back and it's a call for them to be devoted to the Lord. Because when they look back... They see that Israel's history in the land has been one of compromise with the inhabitants. They had intermarried with them. They had worshipped their idols. They had taken on board their religion. They had not been devoted to the Lord. And that compromise had been their undoing. That was why they lost the land and got into exile. 
And now chastened by that experience of preparing to return to the land for a second time, Deuteronomy and the historical books which follow it provide God's people with a narrative which shows them where they went wrong. If they had refused to compromise, they would have stayed in the land and enjoyed God's blessing. But they did not do so. If they had driven the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites out of the land, their story would have been very different. And so the argument goes, by the time Deuteronomy is written, all these tribes themselves were ancient history. And the command to exterminate them was never intended to be taken literally. It's what they should have done, not what they were called to do. It was a call for them to learn the lesson from the past. This time, as they went back again, there was to be no compromise with the foreigners living in the land. This time, there was to be no flirting with their religion. The command to destroy the inhabitants of the land and their religious shrines is hyperbolic, intended to ram home the vital importance of being devoted exclusively to the Lord. Because belonging to a holy God means being set apart from him from all other nations under heaven and being devoted to him and him alone. Other people argue the passage was always intended to be read poetically rather than literally because the tribes of Canaan symbolise the forces of chaos that threaten the integrity and order of God's people. These tribes are portrayed as enemies that need to be destroyed because they offer a tantalising, seductive alternative to being devoted to the Lord. They embody power and success. Their daughters, they're so attractive, and their style of religion is so enticing and alluring. Their capacity to lead God's people astray is phenomenal. So from the word go, have nothing to do with them. No compromise, no toying with temptation, no flirting with the enticements on offer. Saying yes to God means saying no to them from the outset. And the military imagery is designed to show the absolute determination and courage required to resist the destructive powers of evil. You need to be ruthless with the powers of evil in order to resist them and overcome them. And our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of wickedness. That's how the Apostle Paul puts it in the New Testament. So there are valuable lessons about how we take a stand against what is evil from this passage. But still the brutalising nature of the language and the incitement to religious violence can leave a bad taste in the mouth. In the hands of fundamentalists, this remains a highly dangerous text. But then perhaps... Moses could be the religious fundamentalist here. Don't forget that Deuteronomy is largely made up of words that Moses addresses to the people of Israel. He starts talking to them at the beginning of chapter 5, when he gives them the Ten Commandments, and he stops at the end of chapter 26. That's quite a long sermon. All this is what Moses tells the people God said to him. All the laws and decrees which he sets before them in the name of God. These are the commands, the decrees and the laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe, he says. He says that at the beginning of chapter 6. Yet if you check your sources, Moses says some things in Deuteronomy to the people that God doesn't seem to say to him in Exodus. It's similar, but it's not quite the same. Let me read you some of the stuff it says in Exodus 23. The Lord says to Moses, My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites and Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. 
Do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. Worship the Lord your God and his blessing will be on your food and water. I will take away sickness from among you and none will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full lifespan. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive the Hivites, Canaanites and Hittites out of your way. But I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous numerous for you. Little by little I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the desert to the river. I will hand over to you the people who live in the land and you will drive them out before you. Do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Don't let them live in your land or they will cause you to sin against me because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. And in chapter 34 we find, be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going or there will be a snare for you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous god. Be very careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land, for when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. And when you choose some of your daughters as wives for your sons, and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. Do not make cast idols. There's much there that we recognise from Deuteronomy. But what you won't find in Exodus is any command from God saying to Israel, you are to exterminate them. You are to put them into death. You are to show them no pity. You are to wipe them from the face of the earth. There is no command in Exodus to wipe out the inhabitants of the land, to destroy them totally, men, women and children, without pity or mercy. You don't find God saying that. You don't find it in the Bible before Deuteronomy. But Deuteronomy is what Moses claims that God had told him. So what's going on here? Does Moses misrepresent God? Does Moses hear God saying, I will wipe them out, and he tells the people, you must wipe them out? Does he go too far? Does he take upon himself to add in the commands to exterminate the inhabitants of Canaan because he supposes this is what God had in mind? We don't know. But the fact remains that the mandate for genocide can only be traced back to Moses, who claims divine sanction for it. But look behind Deuteronomy to find what God tells Moses in the book of Exodus, and you won't find it there. All this is a lesson to us that we need to check our sources and listen carefully to what anybody says to you in the name of God from a pulpit such as this one. All kinds of violent atrocities are committed in the name of God, But that does not mean that God sanctions them or wants any part of them. And maybe this passage in the Bible is there as a warning to us to keep our minds switched on whenever we listen to anyone telling us anything in God's name. I hope that applies to you here this morning. Because this is an invitation to switch your minds on and think, what do I make of this passage? How do I understand it? How do I make sense of it? At the beginning of John's Gospel, we read that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the best picture of God we have. And without the grace and truth that he brings, all we are left with is the violence and destruction of religion. 
The Apostle Paul makes a similar point when he says that the letter of the law kills, but the Spirit brings life. In Deuteronomy, we catch a glimpse of the dark side of religion. We can interpret it. We can see God's implacable opposition to sin and evil. We can see the challenge to us to be holy, to be devoted to God, and to take a stand against all the enticement and temptation puts in our way. We could take from it as well a warning actually to be discerning about what we hear when people claim to speak in the name of God. Has God really said that? Is that what really God is like? Because to see the best picture of God, his ultimate solution to the problem of human sinfulness, to find the grace that brings salvation instead of destruction, for that, you need to look at Jesus, who is the ultimate, the clearest picture of God that we have. Because in Jesus, God comes amongst us to make himself known to us. God in human form, bringing the darkness of bringing the light of God's presence into the darkness of religion.